All right. Well, we have been in Mark, and I'm uh, so uh, happy with how it's been going, just for my own sake, my own soul, studying Jesus. It's always compelling to study the life of Jesus Christ. And so going through Mark is fantastic, but what we're going to do this morning is jump out of Mark, and you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now, if you remember last week, we got to the point in the gospel of Mark, Jesus's life, when Jesus began his public ministry, and we kind of asked the question, okay, if God entered our world, and if he began to speak to us, what would his message be for humanity? And if we ask that question, we don't need to wonder, we don't need to guess, because the answer is given to us in Mark chapter 1. God comes incarnate in Jesus Christ, and he comes speaking. He comes, the, the word is proclaiming in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And the message, do you remember what it is? Kind of the fundamental word, the word right at the heart of the message of Jesus as he comes into the world, the message that we all need to hear, the message that all the world needs to hear. Do you remember what it is? Repent. Wow, you were paying attention. Well done. Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he says. God has a message for all humanity, and the message is repent. That means turn. That means reorient your life. That means turn away from the sin that you're pursuing or turn away from the self-righteousness that you're leaning on. Turn away from every other thing you're trusting in. Turn away from all other sources of wisdom. Reorient your life under the lordship and leadership of King Jesus. That is repentance. Now, it's interesting, isn't it true, that some of us, when we think of the need for repentance, we think of the people who really got bad lives. Like, they have to repent. The people who are, quote-unquote, far from God. The people who have done those bad things. You know, the, the dirty lives, the filthy lives, those kind of people. The bad sinners, the big sinners. They need to repent. They need to turn their life around. They need to make big changes to their lives. And sometimes, uh, it's harder for us to imagine that religious people need to repent. That the religious people, whose lives are rather tidy, whose lives are pretty well conformed to the norms of the society, whose lives are cleaned up, the ones who show up to church, the ones who have a measure of discipline and hard work in their lives, the message that Jesus brings is for all humanity. Not just these quote-unquote big sinners. It's interesting that in any group and in any church and on any Sunday morning, it's probably true that we have kind of both categories of people present. Right? You have some people who are here that would identify themselves as uh, big sinners. It's like, I've done a lot of bad things. I've lived a bad life. I, I've done things in my past. I've done things that I wouldn't even want to talk about. I claim that category sinner because that's how I have lived. That's who I was, or maybe that's who I am. Uh, you, you, you would have no problem identifying with that label, sinner. And then there's also probably in this room some very cleaned up, uh, nice, uh, uh, responsible, hardworking, diligent, religious people who haven't experienced all that much 
external rebellion in their lives. They've kind of had a, a neat and tidy life, and they've really conformed into their family structures or the society structures. They've been good. They've been nice. They fit right in, and everyone kind of loved them and pat them on the back. And I want to point out this morning that the call to repent is for both of those groups. It's not like you got some different category of sinner. It's like once you get this far gone, you got to repent. Everyone else, uh, you can just do something else. Repentance is reserved for them. Uh, No. And what I want to do this morning is to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus actually talks to both groups at the same time. The, The rebels and the rule keepers. The, the, those who have, uh, are, are called sinners on one hand and those who would be self-righteous on the other hand, mixed in a crowd, and Jesus addresses both. And in this address to both of them, he provides a compelling reason to repent for both. A compelling reason for for those who are sinners and far from God in their external rebellion, for them to repent and turn and bring their lives to conform to Jesus Christ, and for those who in their religiosity and their external conformity and their rule-keeping, they're far from God, as nice as they look on the outside, a good reason for them to give up in their rule-keeping, give up on their self-righteousness, and come to Christ in repentance, in true repentance. And we're going to see that in Luke chapter 15. We're going to see that in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. Look at with me, and I'm going to read the, the whole section. We're going to look at an interesting time in Jesus' ministry, and we're looking at repentance. Remember, Jesus in Mark 1 is saying, all humanity must repent. Now, I want to give you the motive to do that. I want to show you what is it about the heart of God that should draw the self-righteous to repentance and the sinners to repentance, the religious people to repentance, and what should drive those rebellious runaways to repentance. I want to show you how Jesus addresses both and gives them a compelling reason for both to turn aside from whatever they're pursuing and trust in Jesus Christ, all right? That's what we're going to do. Look at with me in chapter 15 of Luke. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. A simple story to illustrate a profound 
reality. I want to look at this real quick. Let's start by looking at the crowd. We already kind of mentioned this. You see two types of people present. Do you see that there in verse 1? Who's there? The tax collectors and sinners. And what are they doing? They're drawing near to hear him. By the way, if you have an English translation of the Bible, which every one of you does, you probably also have a chapter heading right there. You've got chapter 15, you know, big, big, big numbers right there. And some of you might even have an editorial heading right above that, the parable of the lost sheep. And those features of your English Bible kind of hinder you from seeing something that's actually happening in the text. If you go to chapter 14, the very last sentence of chapter 14, Jesus cries out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And immediately, if we were to just erase the chapter titles and the editorial headings and the numbers there, immediately what you would read is this, tax collectors and sinners are hearing. They're, they're drawing in. There's something so compelling about Jesus, they want to know. They want to get close. They want to hear. There's something that they want to listen to. They seem to have ears to hear, and so they're drawing near to hear. Who are these people? These people, they're described in two words. You got your tax collectors and you got your sinners. Tax collectors, as many of you know, were outsiders to the society there in Israel because they were basically looked at as traitors. Uh, they were Jews who had sided basically with Rome to work for Rome and to be the ones that went around and collected the taxes for Rome. And yet they would do it with dishonesty. They lacked integrity. And so they would go around. And when they were collecting taxes, as many of you know, they would take a little bit for themselves off the top. They would say, hey, you owe this much. Um, and that would be more than they actually owed. And whatever they took, the extra, they'd gather for themselves. So they were recognized as basically thieves. They were understood to be dishonest. And the Jews knew that of the day, and they did not like tax collectors. And tax collectors kind of became a euphemism for referring to a social outcast, a sinner, uh, someone who's dishonest, someone who lacks integrity. That was a tax collector. The second word that's used to describe this first crowd is sinners. It's a more general term, and it would include uh, those who would be labeled as the lowlifes of society. A sinner is a word that could be used to describe someone who is uh, uh, the scum of society. These are the people who are marginalized and outcasts due to the fact that they have lived lives of outright rebellion to societal norms. This would include prostitutes, drunkards, lawbreakers in general, people who would not conform to the, the law of the land. They were sinners and they were morally filthy as so uh, the people had wanted nothing to do with them. That's the first group. These people are drawing near to hear Jesus. You see the second group there, it shows up there in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, these are people that you have heard of, I'm sure, already. And I just want to point out, when you hear the word Pharisee, you immediately think hypocrite, right? This is how we all, having read the New Testament, having heard what Jesus has said about Pharisees, we think Pharisee equals hypocrite. And I tell you, that's not how they would have saw it back then. The Pharisees would have been the people, if you're a, a father, for example, in Israel, and you're raising your kids, you would probably say to your kids, hey, be like them. These are the honorable ones in society. 
These are the ones that have worked hard, they've established a reputation, they're well known, they're often teachers of the people in Israel. They would have been masters of the Old Testament and the laws upon laws that they had put on top of the Old Testament. Hard-working Jewish leaders, respectable, honorable, religious elite. These would be the ones that society looked up to and modeled their lives after. People would aspire to fit in with the Pharisees and the scribes. And what are they doing? What are they doing? You see it there? The tax collectors and the sinners, they're all drawing near to hear Jesus. They want to hear him. They want to listen. The Pharisees have a completely different approach. What are they doing? They're grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So here's our crowd. You got those honored by society and you got those outcast by it. You got those who are respected by society and you got those who are reviled by society, the leaders and the lowlifes, all kind of mashed together. And you got one group that's saying, I want to hear, I want to learn. What are they talking about? What's Jesus saying? Uh, can, I, can I come near him and, and hear what he has to say? Whatever he's saying is so fascinating, I want to know what he's saying. And the others are not listening, but they're grumbling instead and they're accusing him. They, they don't want to listen, it seems that they are not the ones that has ears to hear, like the previous verse says. Uh, it seems that the tax collectors and the sinners want to hear, but the Pharisees, these religious folk, the people who knew the Old Testament and had done all the rituals and accomplished enough in their lives to be noted as respectable, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. In fact, they level at him an accusation. They lodge at him a uh, criticism. And here it is. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so we looked at the crowd. Now let's look at the accusation. This, this guy, he, he's, he's welcoming sinners into his life. He's, and to like make this even more emphatic and incredulous, he's eating with them. If you were a Pharisee, this would have been a giant violation of your purity. I mean, if you were a Pharisee, let me just explain Phariseeism real quick. It was probably a sect of Jews that started before even Christ was born, and it perhaps even started with good intentions. We're going to be really serious about being holy, and we're going to do everything we can to follow the, all the Old Testament laws. And what happens when you do that without actually changing your heart? Well, eventually, it becomes so external and becomes so on the outside. And what they began to do was add law upon law. You had real biblical law, but then you're adding human-made law, man-made law on top of the real divine law. And over time, you have this elaborate structure, an elaborate system of laws upon laws that they used to build themselves up and make themselves feel holy. And it also became the standard by which they judged everyone Else. And part of their maintaining holiness was disassociating themselves with people that they felt didn't rise to their standard. They, they felt that if you weren't able to meet the standard of, per, of this personal holiness, we didn't want to spend any time with you. And Pharisees, it was a part of their own righteousness that they wouldn't allow themselves to be in relationship. They wouldn't even allow themselves under the same roof as these types of sinners. It would defile them, they would think. 
let alone eat with them. Eating is often in Scripture portrayed as a form of fellowship. I mean, the deepest kind of fellowship we experience in the church is portrayed in, in graphic imagery as we go to the table together. We eat a, eat a spiritual meal together. It, it's meant to represent a real unity. That's what the communion table is. Uh, eating often is a demonstration of hospitality, and it's a demonstration of love and welcome. And so they're appalled that Jesus would not only welcome them and not only receive them, not only is Jesus letting them hang around, not only is Jesus letting them listen, he's eating with them. He's, he's showing hospitality. He's showing generosity to the Pharisees. You know what this is? The Pharisees see this as ministry disqualification. Who is this man Jesus? That he just is violating all our rules. We're supposed to be holy people. We're not supposed to eat with sinners. Now, I want you all to know something about this. What are the Pharisees doing when they make this accusation? There are sometimes by making an accusation, you accuse yourself. It's like when one of my kids say, she was opening her eyes during the prayer. It's like, you just, you, just, you know, you made yourself guilty. Like, you just revealed your own issue. Now, now here, you know what's happening here? By making an accusation, they're revealing their own issue. You see what it is? You know what they're doing? Who are they labeling as the sinner? They, they got this label that they're going to use, and they're going to slap that label on a certain category of people. They're going to say, this man, referring to Jesus, he receives sinners. Now, here's that label, and they, see, they slap it on these people. They're the sinners. And you know what they also just did by making that accusation? They just disassociated themselves. They just separated themselves. They said, I'm not that. By taking the label and slapping it on someone else, they've also at the same time said, I am not a sinner. I am not that kind of person. I'm different. And what does that mean? What does that show? What does that imply? Uh, how do they think of themselves? They see themselves as righteous, as holy, as pure. They see themselves because of their religious uh, discipline and showing up to do all the religious activity, they have now begun to see themselves not as, listen, not as sinners in need of grace, but as religious men and women who have accomplished much and therefore, therefore have somewhat earned the favor of God. They revealed their own self-righteousness in criticizing Jesus. They've revealed about their own hearts that they don't see themselves as sinners. They've, by accusing others, accused themselves of being self-righteous. But they can't believe that Jesus would do this. They would never do it. Jesus is unlike them. And so in this scenario, in this setting, with this happening, this grumbling, this accusation flying around, now Jesus replies to both. Okay? And here's the parable. We've got the crowd, we've got the accusation. Now let's look at the parable. He tells them, you see that in verse 3, so, you know, so because of what's happening, because of what they're doing and what they're talking about, he goes, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story. And this story is going to hit the heart of both of you. You sinners and you self-righteous. You rebels and you rule keepers. You who are religious, uh, you need to hear this. 
And you tax collector sinners, outsiders, you need to hear this as well. And so he's going to tell them a parable. I wonder, again, if one of us or any of us identify with one of the groups here. I wonder if any of you are, maybe you'd never admit it, no one ever does, more like the Pharisee. It's really hard for you to associate yourself with sinners. You, you see them as in a kind of different category than yourself. You're, you're too different, and, and it would be almost a defilement for you to you know, spend too much time with them. You even use the word them to describe even further disassociating yourself from them. Or maybe you would see yourself more like a tax collector and sinner. You look at yourself and you go, man, I, I have been so bad. I have been so disobedient. I'm so filthy. I've done nothing to make myself of any value to God. Well, Jesus has words for all of us. Because I guarantee not all, not, we're not all perfect we, we tilt in one of these directions. I want to tell you this, that the parable is brilliant. You say, okay, yeah, it's Jesus. But it's, when you think about what he does, it's, it's masterful. He, he identifies the heart issue of both groups. Some of you might be thinking, well, those are completely different issues. You got uh, the, the, the rule keepers are a different kind of breed of sinner, and the rebels are another breed of sinner, and they're different. I want to tell you, they're actually, they, they come from the same source. Let me, let, me, let me propose this. You know what the problem is with those who are always trying to perform more religion, always trying to do more rule keeping, always trying to perform by religious duty and therefore earn their way to God? You know what's at the heart of that? It's the heart of a lack of an understanding of the love of God. You know Why? Because that person who's always trying to earn favor with God by their rule-keeping doesn't believe that God can love them apart from their rule-keeping. They think that God's love for them is contingent. It's a kind of weak love that needs to be coaxed out of God. And if I do enough, then he'll love me. And you know what the problem is with the, the, the one who's the rebel? You know what it is? It's a doubt with the love of God. It's the same issue. But their expression of uh, their doubt of the love of God is to run away from him because they doubt that his rule over their life would be good for them. They see his word, they see what he commands, and they see it as restrictive and suffocating and they want nothing to do with it. They doubt that if they were to submit themselves to God that it would actually be uh, what they need and what God uses to bless them. They doubt that God loves them, so they run. Some doubt that God loves them, and so they work harder in religious duty. Both of them are doubting the love of God. Both of them are doubting that God could be so great in his love, so lavish in his love, that even his loving rule over your life would be good for you. And some people doubt the love of God because they're thinking they got to earn it. And he's going to tell a parable that shows the heart of God. And let me tell you, this is an amazing parable to sit and just think about. Verse 3, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then he kind of summarizes the lesson in verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's notice a few things here. Notice how he starts the parable. Verse 4, what man of you, a masterful teacher Jesus is, he draws in the crowd with a question. They're forced to think about it. They're forced to enter into the situation that Jesus is creating and wonder what they would do. It's a way great teachers teach is they ask a question and now the listener has to be engaged. they got to evaluate. they got to think what they're going to do in a situation. All people present at Jesus' telling of the parable are now forced to evaluate what they would do in a situation. What would you do? And then look at this. He, he's... He actually is raising an easy ethical dilemma here. This isn't a hard thing. What would you do if one of your sheep was lost? It's actually not as hard. We, we, we don't have sheep, I don't think. Maybe some of you have sheep. I don't have a sheep. I've never owned a sheep. I uh, you know, don't have many shepherd friends. Um, so I, I haven't experienced this, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'd let them one go. I don't know how precious a single sheep is. But... That, apparently, this is so much of a common situation, and in first century Palestine, shepherds were everywhere. It was obvious that if you had a sheep and he wandered off, well, a good shepherd, what does he do? He goes and gets the sheep. That's what, a, that's what any shepherd would do. It's not this heroic shepherd, it's just any shepherd. This is not a hard ethical question. Maybe in our, our, our day, we'd say, hey, if you lost a kid at the mall, would you go back and get him? And some of you go, I don't know. Maybe we can let them figure it out until they get home. Uh, but if the question is meant to be, this is obvious. Come on. If you lost a sheep, what would you do? You'd go get them. Come on. And he's, he's drawing out. You would do this. He's, he's, he's engaging their own heart and causing them to think through what is right and what is wrong. And then what he does to, to kind of bring this parable along, he points to... He points their, their attention to not merely, listen, not merely the rightness of the shepherd going after the sheep, but the heart of the shepherd who goes after his sheep. You see that? He, he, he points to the heart. How, do you see it? He goes, in verse 5, what does he do when he finds it? He takes it upon his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, what does he do? He calls all his friends and he calls all his neighbors, rejoice with me. He's, he's getting not to the, just the fact that the shepherd goes after those who are lost. He talks about the heart of the shepherd who goes after those who are lost. It is, a, uh, it is the joy of the good shepherd who pursues lost sinners. And then verse 7, 
he, he takes this analogy. They, they've now been forced to evaluate themselves. They've been forced to see the heart of the shepherd. And he tells them, now turning to the lesson in verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Joy in heaven. God and the angels rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who think they need no repentance. This is, this is not just the fact that God saves sinners. This is the heart of a God who saves sinners. It's, guys, this gets really personal really quick. I don't know if there's anything that, that strikes the heart of, of me than to reflect on a God who delights and rejoices to save sinners. I mean, I could talk about ecclesiology all day. I could talk about getting into church leadership and church planting and revitalization and discipleship. I love that stuff. It gets me excited. But I don't think any of those topics touch my soul like this topic. The reality that this is God, the heart of God for sinners, the love of God for sinners, the joy of the Father in redeeming sinners. This will melt you. This will break you down and humble you and bring you to rejoicing yourself in the fact that this is really what he's like. This is really what God is like. This is a truth that just cuts straight to the heart. It stirs the affections. God is a Savior. See it? By God's very nature, He is compassionate. By His very nature, He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is patient. He is kind. By His nature, He is long-suffering. God is, yes, blazingly holy. And He's deep with mercy. Yes, God promises death to all who sin and yet tastes death Himself that we might live. He is a God who, yes, demands perfect righteousness and provides it Himself because none of us can attain it. He is perfectly holy and never once compromises His love and grace. He is just and He is merciful. He is both at the same time. And what Jesus is doing here is He's putting on display the love and the grace and the joy and the mercy of a God who delights to save sinners. And that is compelling motive to repent. Is it not? That God really is this way. God really is this way. We, we didn't make this up. God has come in Jesus Christ. He has preached a message of repentance, calling all people to turn to Him and to entrust their lives to Him. You say, well, why should I do that? Why should I give up what I got going in my life? You know what the answer is? 
is because when you turn to God in repentance, you turn to one who is not only infinitely strong and infinitely wise, but you turn to one who will be always and forever gracious and merciful and kind to you from that moment unto all eternity. And he will never lavish, he will never stop lavishing the love that he has for you all through eternity. It will be yours. Here's the best reason to repent. It's the kindness of God. The kindness of God leads to repentance. That's Romans chapter 2. What kind of kindness that God has lavished on us. He's putting on display. He's saying you both, you, you sinners and you self-righteous, you have reason to come to Him. I love thinking about the way that God delights to save sinners. Uh, you read through the Bible, you find this coming up again and again and again in various places. Psalm 105, verse 43. He's talking about how God saved the people out of Egypt. And he, he says this, God brought his people out with joy and his chosen ones with singing. Isaiah 62, verse 4, talking about Israel, his people. He says this, you shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. Listen to this. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you. He goes on to describe, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's hard to fathom this kind of love, this extravagant love that the Father delights in. The, the, the metaphor that keeps coming up in Scripture is it's like, it's like a, a husband who loves in perfection his wife. Uh, when, we, when I go to a wedding and get to the, just observe and I'm sitting in the chairs as, as the, the thing gets going, usually the, the groom is up front. And that bride's about to walk through the back doors. And I love watching the look of the face of that man up front. The, the joy that's on his face. He sometimes he's holding back tears of joy. His smile's barely able to be held back. He's, he's looking, he's antsy, he's excited. And then the doors open and his eyes are locked in as he watches his bride walk down the middle. And you know, the Bible's reaching for metaphors to describe what God feels for his people. And what metaphor does he use? It's, it's, a, it's, like, it's like what? What is it like? It's like, it's like a groom. Who, who sees his bride. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. The things we see are like parables telling us the greatness of the majesty of the love of God. He delights in us. Uh, Zephaniah 3.17 is almost unbelievable. It's describing that God will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he will, listen to this, exult over you with loud singing. The God who spoke the universe into existence will sing over me? I mean, he loves me that much? He's that excited about me? He's that enthusiastic? He will not, he doesn't do any of this good to me begrudgingly. No, he doesn't. It or, uh, this love originates deep within the heart of God. It is who he is. It's part of his character. Doesn't this amaze you? This is the way God is. He's not coerced to do any of this. There's no force or manipulation in any of this. This is who God is. He really loves to save 
sinners. The Bible also teaches that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked, listen, would turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. Why, why would you die, O house of Israel? God says. He doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked. He will be just. He will do what is right. If, if those who don't come to Christ reject Jesus all throughout their life, God will be just and they will pay for their sins. But God does not delight in the same way in the punishment of the wicked as He delights in the saving of His children. He desires that all people be saved. When God's Spirit inspired the prophet Jeremiah, he wept for wayward Israel. He's called the weeping prophet. When the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write the book of Romans, you remember toward the end of the letter he speaks of great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Why? Because there's lost souls, people I love that have not yet been saved. When Jesus saw unrepentant Israel, Jerusalem there, unrepentant, stuck in their ways, refusing Him. Do you remember what He did? He wept over them. He cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. God delights to save. No one forces God to save. It's what He loves to do. This is what the parable is showing. It's showing to the sinners, you have a God who loves to save sinners. And also, He's speaking to the self-righteous. And we're going to get to how He talks and addresses to them. And at the heart of it, what both of these groups need to hear is that God rejoices and delights in saving the worst of sinners. So let's apply these truths. First, let's speak to the sinners in the room. I want to speak to those people who when you look at your life, you think, man, I've blown it. I've blown it a lot of times. I want you to, as I talk to sinners, there's often people who, upon hearing this, they, they, there's a sting of regret I want to talk to those people who recoil when they look within their own heart because they recognize there's still a harem of sins living in there. I want to talk to those who, there's a fear even of the future of the day that they stand before God. And I want to point out what this parable is saying. That the accusation that the Pharisees made is gloriously true. You see what it says? This man, Jesus, receives sinners. He takes them in. And not only takes them in, He eats with them. He fellowships with them. 
He's generous with him. The insult that they lodge at Jesus couldn't be more gloriously true. And if you are a person who feels the weight of your own sin, and you feel the gravity of your own guilt, and you recognize that I have no right before a holy God, then listen, this is to you. You are welcome to come to Jesus. This parable is showing God receives sinners, God rescues sinners, God redeems and rejoices over sinners. And if you see yourself as a sinner, and you're not ashamed to take that label, you say, that's what I am. I've sinned against a holy God, and I'm undeserving, and I'm guilty. And if you can see yourself under that uh, identification, then you are the kind of person that Jesus has come to save. That's the kind of people he's come to save. And it's not only that he's willing to save. Look at this. What does the shepherd do in, this, in the parable here? He, he's, he's going after that lost sheep, isn't he? He goes after. He leaves the 99. He, he's going after. That's what the words are used. He goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. He tracks it down. He looks until he finds. He does not give up. This is an act of God's sovereign grace. This is a picture of God's pursuing mercy that the shepherd goes after his sheep and will find them and bring them home himself. This is amazing. This is who God came to save. If you're a sinner and you haven't trusted Christ, uh, all your life has led up to this moment, right? Whatever has happened to bring you into this room for this particular morning and have you hear this particular message it is God's providence that you've come. And what the message that Jesus has for you this morning is that Jesus receives sinners. He eats with them. He welcomes them in. He welcomes those who turn away from their sins and are clasping on to Jesus and His grace and His mercy. You can come to Him. He's like a shepherd that's been tracking you down and now he's got you in his sights and he's going to bring you home and you can trust him with your life. Today could be the day of salvation for any sinner, anyone who's low enough and humble enough and at the bottom rung enough to recognize I can't do anything myself. I need grace. He comes for sinners. You ever worry that there's enough grace for you. I know I've talked to people in my ministry over the years of people who are not sure there's enough grace to cover their sin. They've done too many bad things. Their past is too riddled with shame and disobedience that they think God would never want to save me. But I think what this parable says is verse 7, quite clear. What does God do when sinners repent? He's not begrudgingly taking them in. He's rejoicing over them. He's celebrating in heaven over them. You think the God who created the universe doesn't have enough grace for you? He's got plenty of grace, oceans of grace, all the grace you could ever imagine for anyone who would come in. There's a universe of grace waiting for any sinner who comes to God in Christ. Anyone can come. He won't cast you out. 
You might say, oh man, I've sinned too greatly. He's going to punish me. No, that's why he, Jesus came and died on the cross to take your punishment. You don't have to fear punishment. Punishment has already happened on the cross. You say, well, man, I don't have any righteousness of my own. I haven't done anything. I haven't earned anything. Well, yeah, none of us have either. But Christ provides his righteousness to you as if it were yours. And he treats you as if that were to your account. All the righteousness of Christ is credited as yours. You say, well, I'm okay, well, I'm too weak. I can't hang on. Well, don't worry about that. He'll hang on to you. He will hold me fast. We sing that song, and it is gloriously true. He holds us. He clings to us. He doesn't let his children go. The shepherd is pursuing the lost sheep in this. It's not the sheep got to figure out their way back to the shepherd. Christ holds you. If you will humble yourself as a sinner and just say, I have nothing. I'm poor. I'm a sinner. I, I, I want to change. I need help. And I see Jesus. You're all I have. And you turn to him. It says this. Jesus, you know what he says? I came for sinners. He says, I came not for the righteous. I came for sinners to call them to repentance. There's no cost of admission for sinners. You come for free and you trust in Jesus and all the forgiveness is yours. Christ is yours. God is yours. Forgiveness is yours. Cleansing is yours. Heaven is yours. All perfectly free. So if you're a sinner who hasn't trusted Christ, I say, come. Why not come? You must do nothing to get closer to God except come to Jesus. Let go of whatever you're holding on to and come to Jesus Christ and experience the fullness of the grace of God. This parable is also for the rule keepers, the religious. So let's speak to the self-righteous here for a second. You know, this is the portion of the sermon that everyone goes... I hope they're listening. Because not a single one of us, if we're truly self-righteous, will admit it. Proud people never know they're proud. Self-righteous people never think they're self-righteous. That's part of the problem, which makes self-righteousness a much more dangerous sin often than even rebellion. Because self-righteousness, you can deceive yourself into thinking everything's okay. So there's some who, when you hear about the description of the sinner, when you hear that Jesus came to save sinners, you'll, you'll be happy to admit that in general, you've sinned. But you're not quite sure about being called a sinner. Maybe that's a little bit different of a category. I don't know about that. You might be, feel more like the sheep that, Needs no repentance. Needs no turning around. Needs no rescue. Are you a good sheep? Ever left the sheep pen? Did everything the shepherd wanted you to do? Listen to this. This is kind of startling. In verse 7, did you, I just want to read this again. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner. One, one sinner who repents. Where does the joy in heaven come from? Sinners who repent. But what about the 99 righteous persons that don't feel that they need any repentance? Is there any joy in, over them? 
There's no, there's no joy in heaven mentioned over ones that don't repent. There's no reason to repent. And when he's talking about righteous persons, he's not talking about there's some people out here that are perfectly righteous and they don't need to repent. He's not talking about that. You know what he's talking about is the people like these Pharisees who disassociate themselves with sin and sinners and see themselves as having no need of repentance. I got my life together. It's all good. I don't need to turn anything around. I'm okay. Here's the startling reality is that the person who senses no need of repentance has no share in the kingdom at this moment. Because they're so convinced that they're all good, they don't need a savior. They don't need repentance. They don't need confession of sin and turning around. They don't need any of that stuff. Uh, look at Luke 5, 31. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Jesus made it clear. Those who are well have no need of physician. You know what that means? You think you're okay, you don't need a savior. You think your life is good, you think nothing needs to change, you think your heart's spot on, everything's good about your life, nothing needs any kind of altering, Jesus will say, okay, if that's the way you see yourself, let me tell you something, you don't need a savior, you don't need Jesus, you don't need me, you don't need my death, you don't need my righteousness credited to your account, you don't need that. And Jesus says, on the other hand, those who are sick, those are the ones that need a, a physician. And those are the ones that I came to save, Jesus says. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And if there are people who chafe up against that identification, they don't like being called sinners. I wonder if you know God. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is describing the kind of people God saves. He's describing the kind of people God saves. And in verse 27, Paul writes... But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What are the words that are used to describe the people who are right with God and called to salvation? What are the words? Do you see them there in the text? Foolish, weak, low, despised, nothing. And if you hear these labels and you go, no, I don't want to be identified with that. I'm not foolish. I'm, I'm wise. I've lived a good life. I've, I've created my life from the ground up. I'm not weak. Look at the things I've done. I'm not low and despised and nothing. I'm something in the world. Listen, if you can't take the labels that are described here, I, I dare say, I don't know if you can cling to Christ. Because who comes to Christ? None but sinners. None but sinners can come to Christ. The Pharisees can come to Christ to grumble and complain. They can come to Christ to accuse. But sinners come to Christ for salvation. They come with ears to hear. And when someone slaps on them the label of foolish, weak, low, despised, and nothing, they go, oh yeah, that's a great description of me. That's who I am. 
I, I haven't deserved anything. I haven't made any good decisions apart from the grace of God. I am weak. I can't do anything for myself. I'm low. I'm despised. I'm nothing. I need a Savior. And those people get the Savior. What do you think about your life? Are you fully contented about who you are and what you've done and the accomplishments and the habits you've created in your own life? Maybe you've never really felt the slightest need of repentance. Maybe you hear those words and you go, that's not me. You've never felt yourself to be a fool. You've never felt yourself to be weak and needy. You've never felt that you're a nothing. You're a something. If that's you, I would plead with you to have a more accurate view of God. He's a holy God. And He has not just merely demanded external conformity to a certain set of rules, but full-hearted love to Him, resulting in rigorous obedience of Him He's holy. I would remind you that everything you have is from Him. Everything you are is because of Him. And everything He's made you to be is to be given back to Him in worship. And the greatest sin one could ever commit in their lives is to live through life in relative comfort and ease, never once giving God the glory due His name. And you could be a really good and nice person and you could accomplish a lot of good things for society. But if you do not live for the purpose God made you, namely to glorify God with everything you are, you're committed to cosmic treason. I would ask you to see that. To be praiseless and thankless is a devastating sin. And I would remind you, if you are in self-righteousness, that one day you will stand before God. And all your accomplishments will mean nothing. They'll be stripped away. All the things you've done in this life will be stripped away and you will be laid bare before the Maker of the universe. And you will have one hope and it will be Jesus Christ. That's it. You can't build your life on anything else that's all sand nothing. He will judge the secrets of your heart. And so if you are the one who is maybe more on the self-righteous side, you don't associate yourself with sinners, you don't adopt that label, you don't see yourself as that way, I would beg you to lower your view of yourself, humble yourself before the living God, and come to Jesus adopting the posture of a sinner of a sinner and experience the grace and love and mercy of God as He rejoices to save sinners. So we had a word to the sinners and a word to the self-righteous. Let's close with a word to the church. For all of us here, I want you to notice this. It is the heart of God to save sinners. He welcomes them. He eats with them. He seeks them out. 
He brings them home. He rejoices over their salvation, however messy they are. And I want to ask you, church, do you share God's heart in this way? Do you welcome sinners into your life? Or have you put yourself on a pedestal and you don't really associate with them, with, with them anymore? Does your heart ache for the lost? That you're like a shepherd that's thinking about the lost sheep out there and you go, I gotta go get them. Does your heart break over them? For those of you who have been in the church a long time, have the years hardened you or softened you to the needs of the people on your street? The co-workers you see almost every day? The unbelieving family members you see from time to time? Friends, there is no better way than to imitate the heart of God and to take on the posture of a shepherd. There's no better way to live your life than to be like Christ on mission for the lost outside of these walls, pursuing these people like lost sheep. Why? Because we are reflections of the great heart of God. We're like that shepherd that we go out and we seek them out and we bind them up and we bring them home. And listen, there's no greater joy than to live your life this way. And I am so encouraged about many of your steps forward in obedience in this matter. So many of you have done fantastic praying for your neighbors, inviting them in, starting even Bible studies. I want to encourage the church to continue excelling still more. In our prayers in the next few months, we're going to talk about this because it comes up in Mark of how Jesus makes disciples. And I want to, uh, us together begin praying about how we can, as a church, reflect the heart of God to the community, to the people God has placed in their lives. Look forward to over the coming weeks talking together about what this might look like for us. Let's be reflections of God's heart who goes out who finds the lost, who brings them home, who helps them understand the heart of the shepherd. We serve a God who is a Savior. He is merciful and He is compassionate and He is generous and He's forgiving and He's patient and He's gracious. And so if you're a sinner, come to Him. The doors are wide open. Christ has accomplished your salvation and trust Him. If you're self-righteous, Bow the knee, lower your view of yourself, and come as a sinner to the gracious and merciful Savior. And if we are part of this church, let's reflect that love to the community around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace and mercy. Thank you that you sought us out to show us your grace. You came for us to bring us home. Lord, I pray for all the people in this room to be stirred up, whether we are religious or whether we are in rebellion, that we would be stirred up to repent and to come back to our gracious Savior and to trust in His amazing love for sinners. And as a church, I pray that we would increasingly reflect your heart to the people around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.